Good day and welcome to Overdrive, a program about trains, planes and automobiles. I'm David Brown and in this program we have some feedback from a listener supporting our call to stop cars making unnecessary beeping noises. In our feature stories we chat to our resident mechanical engineer, Fred Brain, with his laconic reflections on driving on long trips And we have a quintessential example of how politicians have replaced thoughtful, technically excellent public servants with content-ignorant, politically-focused managers. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or try our podcast, Facebook, Instagram or YouTube site. Search for Cars Transport Culture. This program was originally broadcast on the 7th of October, 2023. We recently did a story about cars making unnecessary beeping noises. A listener sent in a comment supporting our stance. She said in part, This morning you spoke about the importance of sounds. I want to draw your attention to the computer startup sound that now plays when you get into cars. No! It's so annoying. I remember when Windows was first introduced and it played a startup sound. Well, they quickly learnt that people got tired of that and introduced a feature to turn that sound off. Please, for the love of God, tell car manufacturers to turn off that computer startup melody. This actually reminds me of a story a couple of years ago at a very important technical conference where a thoughtful and passionate young fellow stood up to make a presentation and each slide he went through, he had an introductory sound of going boing. It took only about four or five slides for a person in the audience to stand up, walk to his lectern, lean over and turn that sound off so that we can concentrate on the real value and needs of what was before us. The interrupter was loudly applauded. The person who wrote the comment also noted that she was not a rev head, but still liked the program. You're listening to Overdrive. We were talking about driving long trips, Sydney to Melbourne, for example, and the fact that the modern motorway has bypassed a number of wonderful little bucolic areas and little townships. An expert in that particular area of driving the highway is our good friend who's laughing now, Fred Brain. G'day, Fred. Hello, Dave. You lived and grew up in Wagga and then went to uni in Sydney, that was a trip you made quite regularly? Yes, it was a well-beaten track between uh, between Sydney and Wagga down the Hume and then branching off onto the Sturt Highway. You also then rallied Datsun 1600, among other things, which made for going to various towns, the rumour, I think, as one and others, and where you would then stay in the town, hopefully, before or after the event. So you, you've got a bit of a feeling for staying in these little townships? Some of them from the rallying days. Uh, I suppose going between here and uh, Wagga 
I never stayed anywhere in between, but I'm pretty familiar with all the little towns and the bigger towns along that road. You developed the three-hour or five-hour parameter for judging a car. What was that about? How long you might be comfortable in the driver's seat before you stop. <laughs> back in the old days, I'm, I'm not too sure. I, I hadn't thought of it back then, but... Uh, these days with the, with motorways, it's kind of more relevant than the old days, I think. The old days, you try and pick the traffic. Other factors dominated, fighting with trucks and, and on narrow roads and so on. Yes, exactly. What was the first trip you made, Sydney, to Wagga on, on your own, not with your parents? Although maybe with your parents. Would you have been as a young whippersnipper sitting in the back seat? Oh, for sure, yeah. We um, we used to go on holidays down to Cronulla for a couple of weeks. Luxury. Luxury, exactly. So I remember uh, travelling in the old E.H. Holden in the middle of summer, blistering heat, no air conditioning back in those days, vinyl seats. Vinyl seats, yes. <laughs> the relief when you saw the sea and got a sea breeze when you actually got to Cronulla was unbelievable. Do you think you might have enjoyed your holiday more because it was such a relief to get there? Oh, I'm sure we did, for sure. <laughs> I was going to say, those were the days when there was absolutely no dual lane expressway between Sydney and Melbourne even. Well, maybe Victoria had a bit of it, but even there they probably wouldn't have. So that was the really old main Hume Highway, which had a few bits of divided lane but not very much back in those days. And you would go through towns. Every town, yes, that's right. <laughs> Talking to our colleague Alan Finlay, and he, he referred to the Razorback Mountain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you always didn't look forward to the Razorback because you knew there'd be some really slow trucks going up it and you'd be stuck behind them for however long it took to get up the Razorback. Mm. So, so it was notorious for being the, one of the worst spots. How did you keep yourself busy? Would you eye spy or try and read a book or, or what? Uh, no, I used to get a bit car sick, so uh, I never read books. But uh, we certainly played I spy and maybe just looked at the identified semi-trailer makes. That was always interesting. Um, looked at cars, had plenty of time to do it off. I met a young girl who used to sit in the back of her grandfather's 1923 Bentley and she learned to make the sound of cars. It was a time when we had the opportunity and not the distractions to actually think about the trucks and cars around us more when we were kids. Yeah, that's, that's true too. Quite right, when you're stuck behind them for quite a period of time. <laughs> You start recognising and seeing more things. And the fumes. Oh, it's hard to believe that we uh, that we survived it even, to be honest. Your first drive on your own, what were you driving? Uh, that would have been in uh, the Toyota Corona that I had, uh, which we bought in Wagga when I, I think I was about 20. And you lived. <laughs> yeah, and I lived, yes. <laughs> It was quite a comfortable little... It wasn't a bad car. I mean, that was the Japanese coming in with luxuries yeah. that perhaps our homegrown products might not have had. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it was quite a comfortable little car. Yeah, it, it was somewhat underpowered. That, that was the main problem with it. But otherwise, it, it went quite well. It might be a good idea for a young hoon to be underpowered. Uh, <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> 
I'm making no judgment. <laughs> or if I am, I'm making judgment on myself rather than on, on other people. Yeah, because you actually had a drive of that car at various times, didn't you? I did. I did. <laughs> I count that as an important part of my motoring experience, but perhaps not for the reasons that Toyota might have thought. <laughs> now, how long would it have taken? Um, I think we probably looked at it's probably at least a seven-hour, maybe an eight-hour drive if you didn't stop. How far would Wagga be? Four hundred, five? Uh, well, three hundred miles typically, so about five hundred k's. Okay, yeah, because you had to go along the Sturt to get onto the Hume. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, because it's a bit inland there. That's the sort of. I looked up my navigation to go Sydney to Melbourne on the Hume. The navigation would estimate that you could average. 102 and a half kilometres an hour. Right, yes, yeah, okay. And how, what time did it give from centre to centre? Eight hours and 44 minutes. Gee, it's staggering, isn't it? But I would not recommend it, and obviously that doesn't allow for stopping. Could you do the Corona, uh, do Wagga to Sydney on a tank full? Uh, I think so, maybe just. Just, yeah. Yeah. Of course, you can do that quite comfortably now. I, we went to uh, Melbourne in a Corolla. Yep. And for convenience, we filled it up in Albury, and it took probably about 25 to 30 litres at the most. Uh, yeah, an average 5.5 litres per 100, so, uh, you know, it's pretty good. That's pretty good, isn't it? Well, it was a hybrid. But that right. didn't really help that much on the highway, as hybrids don't. Yeah. Did you learn to hate the sight of coming to a town because you knew that it was going to be such a bun fight? Uh, sometimes, yes. Yeah. Um, but the other the other thing that uh, was was fun to do was to try and bypass some of the towns. Oh. You couldn't do for some of them, but um, when we got closer to Sydney, you'd turn off at Maroolan and head through Bundanoon and follow a back road around there that I think came out at Mittagong, then turn off again and go through Thirlmere on the other side of the road on a back road there that maybe came out uh, Picton or uh, Camden. So it was, uh, it was kind of interesting and somewhat fun at times. The psychology is it might not have been quicker, but you felt better? Yes. Yeah, yeah. you weren't stuck in a traffic queue behind slow trucks. Trucks were very slow at that time, weren't they? I mean, they're, they're not exactly super fast up a steep hill, but, gee, they're a lot faster than they were. Oh, absolutely, yes. Yeah. Uh, you knew that the trucks were going to be such a, a roadblock along the way, whereas these days, particularly on the dual lane road, they can keep up their speed uphill and downhill. I went on the launch of a Hyundai, a Kona, the other day, up around Newcastle and through the back roads there, through places that we used to do that bypassing of major highways, you know, to try and avoid. It was lovely memories, but, you know, it was rough and, rough and tough driving, but you certainly didn't get bored. Uh, yeah, well, that's true. But then when you think the main road wasn't such a flash road anyway, the back road didn't seem nearly as bad as what it might now. <laughs> you have fond memories of some of the towns. What would be a couple of towns along the way that you now know is bypassed but you had a fond memory of? I suppose Goulburn. Goulburn was always always cold, but you kind of remembered it in a somewhat fond way. 
Gundy guy. It was it was always interesting because you were going across the really old wooden bridge. Goulburn is interesting because there, what was it, the Partheon, the cafe restaurant yeah. thing that you used to do? That was well renowned, but it was a nice wide street. But gee, it was busy, wasn't it? Oh, yes, for sure. Yeah, noisy, noisy. Yes, the trucks rumbling through. So you've got to remember all these towns. The trucks and everything went through the centre of them. It's absurd. Oh, when you look at it now, you think, did that really happen? But Goulburn was a big town. I mean, it has a courthouse, yes. has a police and that. What were, what were some of the others you mentioned? Gundagai. Ah. There was always, uh, it was quite a long town to drive through too, but it had that, um, the really long wooden bridge. Yes. Across the river. And that was always interesting, especially when a couple of semi-trailers were uh, going past each other on it. It was really pushing the, the limit of space, wasn't it? Absolutely, yes, yeah. You know, there's no breakdown lane or verge. No. Uh, Gundagai, that's a lovely town, isn't it? There's some beautiful old buildings in Gundagai. Uh, you, you would sit in the main street and have a coffee now far more readily than you might have in the past. Oh, for sure, yeah. I mean, it's true. Most of these towns, you would actually go into them now because they're very nice towns. Mm. Um, even Yass, it was another painful town to go through. I haven't been in there for quite a while now, but um, it's probably quite a pleasant town. But some of the little towns, they've actually come on a lot better. For example, Gunning, ah. which um, is quite a nice little town now to go into. It's not that far away. It's a weekend commute or even Saturday commute from Canberra, for example. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's quite close to Canberra. And Jugiong. We stopped at Jugiong. We had coffee there. Yeah. But you mentioned Yas and Jugiong were two classic places for speed traps. Uh, yes, yeah. I mean, a lot of places were, and the, the infamous one was Bookham, of course. That's come up in conversation with a number of people. <laughs> yes, uh, by, by name and nature. It's almost nominative determinism, isn't it, that its <laughs> name has dictated yeah. what it becomes, like people who are called butcher. Yes, yeah. Those little towns, Jugiong, yes, it's an opportunity for them to try and, for want of a better word, cash in. I don't want to be over-monetary oriented, but certainly to do things. I noticed in Jugiong there is an NRMA charging station. Oh, okay. Right. Yes, yeah. There's only one, and by the by, when we were there, that wasn't being used, which I find interesting. Mm. You usually think of them as being packed out, but those towns could become quite a reason that – when you stop to charge, you're going to be there for longer than the five or ten minutes you usually take to put petrol in. So they've kind of made it a destination in some respects more so than just a town you're passing through is the other thing. Gunning has, I think that they're talking about trying to build up the local railway station as a museum. Oh, right. Okay. Interesting. Maybe symbolic given the state of our railways. <laughs> <laughs> My colleague, our, our friend whom we know, Stuart, is a little dubious because it's not quite in the town, I don't think. I think you've got to make a bit of a dif distance. Yep. The old bank buildings and, and things like that were classic parts of towns. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's a lot of historic buildings in, in a lot of those towns. Quite right. Would you drive Sydney to Melbourne now? Well, I've, I've done it to do race meetings down in Victoria. It's a bit hard to put your racing Monaro on the train. 
<laughs> yes, yeah. I, <laughs> I think between, um, funnily enough, when when I was when I left school and was going to uni in Sydney, I think I only ever caught the train from Wagga to Sydney once. Ah. Um, and that was, I think it was the spirit of progress was the train that used to run. <laughs> yeah, that's the blue one. I can't remember what colour it was. I think that was the blue one that didn't have sleepers in it. That's where you sat up. Right. And the Southern Aurora was the one that had sleepers. Uh, yes, that could be right, yes. I once caught the spirit of progress back from the rock. Oh, really? Which is south of Wagga. Yeah. What were you doing at the rock? Well, you may remember we had a colleague whose family ah, yes, yes. lived at the Rock. Yep. And for some reason, I was down there at the time. Right. Okay. But then they just put me on a train to go home, maybe far too uh, <laughs> happily, I might add. I, 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 I don't know what that might mean. <laughs> I can take a hint. Train travel was lovely. The only trouble is... Catching a train to Melbourne now is it's 11 hours and you don't have a PowerPoint or Wi-Fi. Oh, really? No PowerPoint on them? No. Mm. You can't do some work. I, I was talking to our colleague Alan about this. It's a great limitation. We must see if we could uh, uh, do that. Mm. To drive now, you would drive in your uh, Pajero. Yes, yes. Is that a car that you would hesitate to drive down, apart from when you were towing your Monaro? No, no. I mean, I basically drive it around Australia. Yeah. So it's a comfortable cruiser anywhere, basically. Is it better than the Corona? Uh, <laughs> slightly, slightly. You don't have to answer that. <laughs> and that's our resident mechanical engineer, race driver and road tester, Fred Brain on stories of long trips on old highways. The full interview with Fred can be heard on our website, drivenmedia.com.au, or our podcast, Cars, Transport, Culture. This is Overdrive across Australia. A large number of individuals and thoughtful organisations have been appalled at the dumbing down of the public service. The Grattan Institute's report, Gridlock, Removing Barriers to Policy Reform, said in part, quote, The public service has been weakened. Often it is not asked to provide policy advice, is not capable of providing it, and is overly pliable in serving the political interests of the government of the day. Australia could break the gridlock in policy reform by increasing the expertise and independence of the public service. These people are being replaced by management that has little or no technical understanding and advisers who only look at the political ramifications. Unquote. The public service is not perfect, but there are many wonderful examples in the organisational history of good public servants doing great work. I received an email the other day from a colleague who said, in part, quote, I cringe at some of the things I hear in meetings. It's sad to see all that specialist technical knowledge accumulated since the Department of Main Road days scattered to the four winds. An example, a senior manager in road maintenance with no road experience once questioned the high cost of line-marking paint and added, in all seriousness, 
that he could buy paint cheaper at Bunnings. I kid you not, unquote. There have been decades of work on developing line marking that is effective at all times of the day and night, in all weather conditions, and lasts a long time. If you think it's just paint on the road, you are promoting a concept that will cause injury and death to many people. What are some of the factors involved in good line marking? David Milling is the Principal Professional Leader, Asset Performance, with the National Transport Research Organisation. I began our chat by asking him, line marking, is it just everyday paint? No, that's right. It, it, it's not just your, your run-of-the-mill waterborne paint, or some, some might view it or reflect it as, as, as being glorified um, house paint. Uh, there's, there's lots of different products and chemical compositions, and, and there's a whole industry based around um, developing and, and improving um, on what the paint products are and what forms they're in for you know, line marking out on our um, road network. Beads in the paint, what are they and why are they still used and, and why are they important? The glass beads are um, essentially a, a sphere. Well, they retro-reflect the light, so they capture the light and they return that light back in the direction of which it, which it came from. If it was just like a mirror, then the light from my headlights would bounce on it and bounce away from me at the same angle, possibly into the eyes of the oncoming traffic these things are clever they bounce the light around and send it back in the direction it came from yeah that's right the size of the bead um, has an effect on how much light it returns captures and returns and also to the quality of the bead so the the clarity of the glass and, and how spherical it is we know that line marking is great when i'm driving along and i want to see it but it's also becoming even more important for lane guidance technology. Is that a critical issue that the authorities are aware of? Yeah, that's right. So you you have your advanced driver assistance technology, which has your lane departure warning and and lane keep assist. And yeah, look, um, they they are aware of it. Um, Line marking is one of the the key components of that technology being activated. And um, just having delineation well, good delineation through line marking on your roads um, provides about a 25% crush reduction in runoff road crushes. Oh. And the um, the ADAS technology can can increase that up to about um, 30 to 50%, depending on the scenario. Sorry, which technology was that? Advanced driver assistance. Right. Uh, yeah, so the, the, so the lane departure warning falls, falls under that category. So if I've got that technology, it's all the more reason for having good line marking. And you want to have good line marking in, in all weather conditions as well. If I get a bit of water over a line, then the brightness of the paint is irrelevant, really, or is marginalised. That's when, and particularly at night, obviously, when the beads come into their own. Yeah, that's right. We spoke about the retroreflectivity, so the, the light coming into the bead and then coming back out. So if you have a film of water sitting on top of the bead, it affects the amount of light going into the bead and then the amount of light that comes back out. So you do get a reduction in retro-reflectivity values, and and there are different combinations of paints and beads that um, provide better performance in in wet weather. So that's important to have more than a vague understanding. There's strong, well-researched technology behind it. Yeah, so we work with um, state road authorities to identify and investigate some of the different line-marking paints and glass bead combinations. 
And yeah, we've demonstrated that some combinations of paint and glass beads don't perform very well at all in, in wet conditions and, and some are performing quite well and, and they're performing for a number of years as well. That then becomes very important, not just to be able to look and say, well, when they put it down, it looks bright and new. It becomes important to understand how well it was put down, but also then how well it's going with maintenance. You've put together a system called iLine. What does that do? Our iLine vehicle measures retroreflectivity on, on a long line, central pavement markings, and also to um, counts the number of raised reflective pavement markers, um, which are a really good delineation, road surface delineation um, tool in wet weather as well. So the iLine vehicle um, essentially measures that level of retroreflectivity continuously uh, while we're surveying at um, traffic speed. How was it measured in the past? The traditional way of measuring it is with a handheld unit, which means that uh, it's the same technology. Um, the iLine and the handheld unit conform to the same standards. And yeah, it was essentially a case of setting up traffic control, closing a lane or, or a road if you needed to, and um, picking up spot samples with the handheld meter, which means you don't get a full insight into the retroflectivity performance over the length of the road. You, you're really um, subject to the randomised sample locations that, that you collect. So can, collecting it continuously on the left and right lines really gives you an insight into how your edge line's performing and your center line's performing, for example, if you're on a, a regional highway. I worked in the area of data collection one time, and we did an exercise with that handheld device, that type of device, and measured a couple of spots. It wasn't hard to find spots that were poorly performing, but the road authority at the time, and this is some time ago, said, oh, yes, but we measure it over a longer distance. But Having a good average is not the same as having a good, particularly in dangerous locations. Is your system a way of saying the whole, you know, on average it might be good, but gee, it's very poor in these dangerous locations? Yeah, that's right. So, so what we'll typically do is if, um, because we can, we can survey uh, an entire road length essentially for, for the same cost as what it would, would be to set up traffic control and, and get a dozen or so spot readings. So it gives us an insight into what sections of the road are performing poorly and which sections of the road are performing highly. And then when we start to expand that into surveying um, routes or, or networks, um, we can provide a classification to each road to say whether it's poorly performing or performing very well. And then that gives us a, a priority list to then dive deeper into the data for each of those roads and and we can, through that data, identify sections that on a poor performing road, we can identify sections that are performing quite well as well. And then we can we can prioritise which sections are remarked and any cost savings. So if a road was 30 kilometres long and, and five kilometres of that was performing really well, we can skip that 5Ks, put the money for that five kilometres onto the next road, which is performing poorly. So we're starting to get really good network efficiency gains and, and we're improving the standard of safety across a, a larger length of roads. Not only saving the fact that you don't have to put down as much line marking and paint or whatever you like to call it, it's on, only doing it and not having to block off the road in order to line mark. There's potentially great savings in that, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. So we're, we're not causing any delays or disruption to general traffic. We're not putting personnel out on the road, road workers or um, the, the staff collecting data. So 
we're really removing that component of, of vehicle or personnel um, crush risk entirely. You did the Queensland network. How many kilometres of seal road was that? Yeah, so it was 28,000 uh, kilometres of, of sealed road network. That's a lot, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it was, a, it was a big undertaking. We had our entire fleet out doing that survey and um, the insights and, and the data that gave us was um, was really great. And when you have a, a, a robust, um, defendable data set, we can start to play around with other things and start delving into the road safety engineering space and and we've developed um, risk scores that we overlay on that data that take into consideration uh, historical crash risk, predictive crash risk, and um, annual rainfall averages. So we can even start to identify what roads um, have a higher crash risk in wet weather and identify and prioritise those for um, some of those line marking um, products that I mentioned that perform well in wet weather conditions. The full interview with David Milling can be heard at drivenmedia.com.au or on our podcast, Cars Transport Culture. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Fred Brain, David Milling and Mark Wesley for their help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or our socials and podcasts. Just search for Cars Transport Culture. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.